This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Go to renthal.com to check out all the parts that you can fit to your bike. On today's World SBK podcast, we're looking back to the French round at Magni Corps and we've got an awful lot to get through. Myself, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie have been absolutely flat out in Magni Corps for the last few days. And Gordo, let's just kick it off straight away. Obviously, you've had your summer break. You came to Ireland. You enjoyed it. But we don't have time to get into it because the biggest news... Probably, well, let's say since Catalonia, when Toprak went to BMW, the biggest news came out when Jonathan Ray confirmed he's leaving Kawasaki after all the success, all the world championships, and he's going to move to Yamaha. Yeah, um, it's been talked about, but when it was first talked about, it was like, well, negotiation strategy, wouldn't that be nice? It's, uh, as I wrote at the weekend, it's a nice fit, you know? Um, Toprak moves to BMW, Jonathan moves to Yamaha, it's a perfect fit for them. But most people just didn't think it was going to happen. I think even his own team didn't think it was going to happen, really, until he, whenever he finally told them, um, no, no, I am leaving and I'm I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, I think because Jonathan has been such an integral part of that team, nine years, and the team in six world championships, um, in succession and only stopped two years ago, um, you know, it's it's a. I think a lot of people just couldn't quite believe it was going to happen, and he would. He's in his late thirties now. Maybe he was just going to see his time out there, try his best to win some races. But no, the fire still burns in Jonathan, obviously, um, and he thinks we'll see if this happens. But he thinks the Yamaha might be more competitive right now. Yeah, I have to say, for me, like whenever I first heard wind of it, which was in and around the Donington weekend and then after that especially, I kind of thought, is this just a ploy to try and get Kawasaki to bring something new, to try and put more resources into the project? Or is Jonathan Ray actually able to get out of his contract or willing to pay to get out of his contract? You know, I think there was always a bit of an assumption that in his clauses there might have been something for, you know, if you're not top three in the World Championship at a certain date, you might be able to get out. That wasn't the case. So... Johnny actually had to stick his hand in his pocket, get his way out of his contract. And I think a lot of people didn't think he was, you know, willing to do that, whether he was that motivated to do that. And as it is, you know, we've seen it time and again on the racetrack how focused Johnny is on winning. He can't win with the Kawasaki. That's been shown now for two years. And I think he's now made the decision. He's into the final years of his career. You've got to be able to win on them. And Yamaha clearly provides a better opportunity to win because you can see that in the manufacturer standings right now it's Ducati, Yamaha, Kawasaki and then BMW or Honda depending on what weekend it is Yes, um, I think that is the, the key to this whole thing is that we're not dealing with a regular rider, we're dealing with the GOAT, we're dealing with somebody who's used to winning and the, the, I think the most important thing for people to remember that a lot of people are either too young or have forgotten about in the past is it's, it's a long time ago is that Jonathan had a very, very long and relatively fruitful career with Honda, but it seemed that they were telling him one thing and then the reality turned out to be another in terms of the bikes, in terms of the opportunities he was going to get in MotoGP, which is where he did went to end up back then anyway. Um, and he finally, when he finally made that realisation, he was 
determined enough to succeed to leave what was literally genuinely a family set up in Tenkata, and he was the only guy that was really cutting it on the bike. But the bike wasn't capable of doing it. The technology wasn't there. Other people were making better bikes than Fourth World Superbike. So he left, and people thought it was unthinkable that he would leave Tenkata, and he left Tenkata. He's now had to have the proof himself for two years to say, look, I can't do this. We've heard them many times, and it all makes much more sense now, say, Kawasaki need to bring more. Um, he's obviously been expecting something. No one knows what has been talked about inside that camp, but he's been expecting more. And when it's obvious it's either not coming or it's not going to be what he thinks he needs to do, they made a change, remember, this year. The bike was supposed to be different this year. Um, and it hasn't been enough. So he's said, OK, I still think I can win. We've seen he can win. I think Johnny's hunger is as, as strong as ever. He's made that decision. And the Yamaha, under top rack, is now winning races. He was having a hard time at the start of the year. Now it's he's finding a way. I think Yamaha will suit Jonathan. You know, as well, that's another thing. I think his riding style might be good for the Yamaha. I think it's one of those situations that people look at it and think, how can Johnny do with the Yamaha, what Toprak's doing? Well, he can't. Toprak is so unique with the way he rides the bike that he's not going to replicate Toprak. Exactly. But he doesn't need to replicate Toprak. He needs to be Jonathan Ray. We know how good he is. And it it changed the emphasis for Yamaha on that breaking zone and the, the first phase of the corner into for Jonathan Ray into the second phase, the middle of the corner, the exit of the corner, trying to get the most out of that bike. And we know Ray's still strong in the brakes. We very rarely see anyone else overtake him on the brakes. So we know that he's going to be okay on corner entry. He's not going to be top rack, but he's going to be okay. And then he's going to use his style for the rest of the corner. And at the end of the day, he's a six-time world champion. He he owns every record in world superbikes. So he's probably going to be okay on another bike considering he's already made that switch before going from a Honda to Kawasaki and now he'll move to the Yamaha and you know it's going to be up to him to be able to adapt to it but it's going to be up to Yamaha to be able to get him up to speed as quickly as possible and we know that Yamaha aren't releasing top rack from his commitments until January they're limiting his testing time with BMW it's interesting that straight off the bat everything we're hearing in the paddock is Johnny's going to be testing this bike pretty much straight after the season yeah and i think that their testing program next year will pretty much be heavily oriented towards the first rounds before the first rounds and the early rounds to get them ready for the rest of the season that to me would be the logical step get them into it, get them used to it take them to two or three different tracks, don't take them to one track and see what can be replicated, so maybe we'll see a big change in Yamaha's uh, uh, in-season 10 days of testing, uh, how and how they go about it basically, um, and it's so complicated now but you can take one rider not the other so there might be a split as well, there might be specific Johnny tests only, I don't know We'll see what they're, they're, they're going to do, but they, they need to get him, as you say, up to speed right away. Um, we know Johnny can, we've seen him jump on different bikes, different specs of bikes, even within Kawasaki, be fast straight away, Suzuka, whatever. So it's it's all, I don't think there's any real problem with Johnny being competitive on a Yamaha. It's quite how competitive is the only question I think that we're going to see. Well, let's look at it as well, Gordo. What's going to happen with his crew? What's going to happen with Reba? We've seen it where Reba, Yuri, Turo, all these guys have been absolutely critical to Ray over the years with Kawasaki. But whenever he left Honda, everyone said, oh, what's going to happen with Johnny Ray without Chris Pike as his crew chief? Well, he worked out fine with Reba. So will Reba move with him or will it be a case of 
just having a, a new set of eyes? Um, I genuinely don't know because I think that those details are not finalised. I don't know. I think we would have heard if it was going to be definite. We'd probably have, somebody would have found out that it was going to be definite. So I don't know if those decisions have been made. Uh, the only thing I can really say about that is maybe if you were Johnny, you would have made the stipulation that I want X, Y and Z or I can't come over. So at least there'll be the ability for maybe anybody or everybody or one or two or whatever of his crew to come over. I would imagine that would be a stipulation of his request to Yamaha. I have no uh, inside information on that. But if I were him and they wanted him desperate enough, remember Yamaha needed a rider of the level of top rack and they have now got a rider of the level of top rack. Simple as that. Whether or not he can do what Top Rack does in the Yamaha, you've touched on already, Steve. Your point's perfect. But they've got somebody who's six world championships. Paul Denning said a lot of things that were interesting on Sunday. But before we got into the race weekend, <laughs> yeah. he was talking in terms of the fact that to replace Top Rack, you need to replace him with someone at a really high level. In World SBK, there's Bautista or Jonathan Ray. Bautista wasn't going to leave Ducati so you could get Jonathan Ray. It was a remarkable bit of business from Yamaha to be able to engineer all this. Obviously, you needed a rider willing to get out of his own contract to be able to do it. But fair play to Yamaha. They really they really put the, they went all in on this one and they managed to make it work. What's going to be interesting, Gordo, is what happens for Kawasaki because how do you replace Jonathan Ray? We've, we've said already that the Kawasaki is probably the third best bike on the grid. So it's not a world championship winning bike any longer. You can see that because Ray's... I don't know, 180 points down on Alvaro Bautista. So we've been able to see this year, that bike is now not capable of winning a world championship because if Johnny can't win a championship on it, can't win races on it, there's very little reason to believe someone else could. And now Kawasaki need to think in terms of how do you replace Ray and how do you build for the future? Well, given that this is a relatively late thing that I I genuinely think everybody inside Kawasaki really didn't think was going to happen, if we take, if we assume that that's the truth of the situation, um, and it seems the most logical thing, then they are now trying to find somebody in a market which has already got the other top option taken away by BMW. Some of them GP, maybe, but again, they're coming. They would want to come on a Ducati. You know, if they get a Ducati, they would be quite keen or keen enough to come. Uh, they know the Kawasaki's. Uh, it's all tech, etc. So it's a case of who wants to be attracted to the Kawasaki. Jonathan, because he's a miracle worker, could do it, make miracles. Top Rack's a miracle worker. You know, Alvaro is getting every single ounce of performance out of that Ducati. After that, who's going to do a better job than Jonathan in our paddock? Red, people talk about Redding, and maybe John uh, um, Scott would get some results on it. But really, he's, he didn't prove to be able to beat Jonathan when he was on a Ducati. So... Yeah, the, the problem is whoever they're going to get, unless they've got a mega surprise up their sleeve, is going to be less of a potent force than Jonathan. So therefore, you start thinking about the future. Maybe they have to pull somebody in for a year and then make a decision the year after, maybe bring a better bike or something. One of those situations, Gordo, that maybe for Kawasaki, the only options in GP are you're trying to pluck someone from Moto2, which at this stage of the year, your options are limited, or else you're looking to see if Digia, who spoke to Ducati, was interested in coming across to World Superbikes, whether or not he comes across. But again, a rider like that, why would you come across on the Kawasaki? That's where you then move into our paddock and you're looking at 
and Axel Bassani is the leading candidate. And the main reason for that is Bassani wants to be a factory rider and he's willing to sacrifice pretty much anything to be a factory rider because he makes decent money from his sponsors at the minute by all accounts, but he's not getting paid a salary by his team. So he wants to earn a wage. He wants to be a factory rider so that whenever he's at the negotiating table next time, he's able to say, I'm a factory rider and this is how I performed on the Kawasaki compared to you know, Alex Lowe's next year could be his teammate or whatever. So he wants to be able to do that. So Bassani's one of the few riders actually motivated to go to Kawasaki. The other ones would be the likes of Xavi Vierge, who's re-signed with, Kawasaki, with Honda for next year anyway. But he would have been one of the options if he didn't have a contract just because a Catalan rider, Provec have always been very keen on him. But as it is, the options are they're pretty thin on the ground for Kawasaki. Yes, they are. Uh, unless somebody else wants to jump shit. At the end of the day, Bassani's the top independent. Bassani was a decent shout to take over uh, the second ride for Factory Ducati, at least from people on the outside. Um, the fact that that ride's gone now to a guy who's absolutely smashing the Supersport World Championship makes perfect logical sense. The, the To me, there's two really interesting elements to the potential for Bassani to go. One, the Provec team, their metier, absolutely their metier, is growing riders and putting riders in a position and improving them. They did that with single mate championships in Spain, with riders like Juan Lascores. They, they find a way of getting the, boat, the best out of riders. Bassani needs a factory team. He needs people, and he need, and, and importantly for him, he needs to have the maturity to understand that when people are telling him, don't do it this way, do it that way, don't behave like that, behave like this, he needs to take that on board. If he does that, I think there could be no better team for growing him as a rider and a force and a in, in every aspect of his approach to racing that he understands he needs to be in a factory team. He's the one that's been saying, I need a factory team. And a factory team now needs a good rider. The one thing that counts against Bassani is the fact that he's on a very fast, basically the same as Batista's Ducati, still hasn't won a race, occasionally on the podium, a bit wild, doesn't go full race distance. There's a few things in his negative box as well as his positive box. He's a rider that's had two podiums this year, both of them in Italy. And with the Ducati, obviously it is tough to break into the top three, especially now that in the last two rounds, Ray's been on the podium every race for the last six. That hadn't been the case up until now. It had opened the door to be able to to be that third rider up on the rostrum. But when you look at Accordo as well, for Kawasaki, Adrian Puertas was a rider that they tested in Aragon and that didn't end up leading to anything. He's going to be a Ducati rider next year with a Rubit in the Supersport class. That was something that we had thought was going to happen maybe at Most and the last couple of rounds. We thought that was on the cards. So fair play to Wirtaz. He's going to have a really good seat next year. And it's good as well for the championship. A 300 world champion progresses over the course of three years in the Supersport class to potentially win a world championship in that class as well. So it's good to see that development. But for Bulaga, he's the rider that uh, probably, he's probably the, the one rider in all of the moves that happened that's probably feeling a little bit, little bit lucky, really, because he's going to win his world championship in Supersport, and then you jump straight onto the best bike on the grid and the right team as well. No pressure; it's all up to Bautista to get the results next year. Yeah, that is the uh, that's the Goldilocks zone for any rider. He's found himself in a perfect position. He's on the best bike, as you say. He doesn't, have, as you say, no pressure. Um, he's going to have a, what that translates to is he's going to have a season to learn how to ride the superbike properly. He obviously can ride a super sport bike well. The Ducati's competitive this year 
maybe too competitive this year. It's certainly outperforming most of the bikes at most of the tracks. Um, and there's been a lot of complaints with that at the beginning of the year. But it doesn't matter. You have to go and do the job. They might be on the best bike in Supersport now and the, and the most experienced team, but he's he's really, he's doing it, you know? Just one thing about that as well, Gordo. The good thing for him is there is an obvious comparison to make, and that's the likes of Rafa de Rosa, Federico Caracasudo. We, bo- we know both of them struggled when they were on a superbike. And he's completely destroyed them this year. Super pole, especially one lap, that's been his forte. So he's done a better job by a considerable margin than the other Ducati riders. So even if Ducati does have that advantage, he's been a bit like Bautista in the superbike class. He's consistently been that reference for them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, you know, there's always a, a, a multiple number of factors that you can look into in a rider and whether he's going to be successful or not. But he has done the job. That's the most important thing. Lots of riders get a chance to have a fantastic bike and don't do it. Michael Ruben Rinaldi is on the same bike as Alvaro Batista in, in the period of time where Batista's become dominant. You know, and, and he's not done anything like he's done. He's actually two positions behind Bassani in the World Championship now. Okay, he's had some bad luck, but he's also instigated his own bad luck. Yeah, it's, this weekend was another one of those situations in point where, again, Rinaldi has a bad weekend on the results, but there's a bit of luck that transpires against him. I don't think he can have any complaints about losing that in that factory seat. As it is, it's up to him to find out where he's going to be next year. And Gordo, that kind of brings us to the next layer of what happens with the riders, the independent teams. It looks more and more likely that Reading's going to be on the Bonovo bike next year. And uh, that makes obviously the clash with Garrett Gerloff this weekend a little bit more spicy. But um, you're going to have Rinaldi trying to figure out if he can get himself onto. Uh, Ducati for next season Loris Baz is in play for that as well to try and get himself onto a Moto Corsa bike if um, Bassani moves to Kawasaki then you also have Andre Iannone is going to be on the superbike grid next year looks almost certain to be on a Go 11 bike that leaves Philip Ertl on the outside looking in maybe Ertl brings some of his money to Pichetti and Pichetti has him back on one of their Kawasaki's he's obviously had a lot of success for them in the Supersport class but <laughs> the next probably, well, the next two weeks, really, whenever we've got Aragon and Portimao back-to-back, you'd expect to see quite a lot of those places all starting to fill out on the grid now as well. Yeah, I mean, we're very near the end of the season now, although we've just finished the summer break. It's the middle of September, you know. How did we get here? I don't know. It seems awfully quick. But we are... There has to be a lot of decisions made now from people who have got either a lot of options or one option. And somebody's going to lose out. And I, it wouldn't surprise me, unfortunately, if there ends up being no place for Rinaldi. Because un- unfortunately, he's been on the best bike and the best team, etc. And not quite cut it. So what's he going to do on a secondary one? Ironically, he did even better as a privateer, as an independent rider, than he did as a factory rider. In terms of race ones, I think. At least the same. So, you know, maybe it doesn't matter which Ducati goes on. If I was a Ducati team and a didn't have to rely on somebody bringing me a wad of money, you'd be taking Michael seriously because, uh, you know, he's he's he is a quality rider. He's just a bit unlucky. But there's no reason why he can't bang in a few podiums for you. Do we think Philip's going to provide podiums for people? I doubt it. Um, do we think that... We've we obviously seen somebody, a rider of the experience and big bike experience of someone like Petrucci can do it. You know, we know the record of lows. Agatha hasn't quite got there. He's been close. 
you know, there's there's not a lot of people you could put in there that are going to guarantee it. So that might be a good thing for Michael, but maybe people just need money. Racing is so much about people bringing money to the, the game now to guarantee a seat. Yeah, and uh, that is what it all comes down to. And it also comes down to that Gordo for us on the Paddock Class podcast. So let's take a break. Let's hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll break down the actual on-track action from Magnicore. Renthal Street Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Gordo, we've managed to talk about everything that happened off track. Well, not everything, but quite a bit of what happened off track at uh, MagniCore. Let's talk about what happened on track. Where do you want to kick off? Do you want to kick off with Top Rack, Ray or Bautista? Um, I think Bautista because that's the big, ooh, you know, that's the red top headline of, you know, wh- why wasn't he punished? Why isn't he been in jail? I was I was going to ask you, Gordo, do you want to start with race one? Do you want to start with the Super Bowl race? Do you want to start with race two? Because we can go in race one and say, what actually happened to his bike? Why did it have the failure? Why did he have to do switch off, switch on and hope it works? We can go to the Super Bowl race. How did he get away with smashing into the back of Michael Rubin Rinaldi and not get a penalty? Or else we can talk about how the fact that Sunday in race two was the only time all weekend where we actually saw just how dominant he was in Magni Corps because he he would have won the first race by a similar margin to race two if he didn't have the problems. We saw that whenever he came back from the technical issue and was, I think, five seconds faster than Top Rack from that point on until the end of the race, despite having to pass 14 bikes. So he had a clear pace advantage this weekend. But once again, Toprak's managed to claw back a few points in the championship compared to where they were coming into the weekend. Well, let's start from the top. Probably something to do with restarted race. If there was some kind of electronic glitch, everything's programmed now so that this is your launch. You know, when you do this series of buttons or that movement of the levers, that sets the ECU to say you are now doing a launch. There could be some mix up with that that somebody hasn't thought about say oh we had to do a restart and then maybe he's gone into a corner with such low revs the thing think, thinks it's shut you know it thinks it's closed down and it's sw- therefore said someone's not right switched it off it obviously went into some kind of fail safe mode he pulled over got it going again and then he used to say look at the pace he had then you look at the incident what I was told at the weekend is the reason we saw ended up seeing a couple of other angles eventually of the incident, right? But because of the security cameras and the safety cameras and the track monitoring cameras, the stewards, the, the people who look after these things and make the judgments have far many more views of the incident than we did. And that is the reason I was told nothing happened because it was what was going on in front of him. He apparently braked in a regular way, but what was happening was Raz Gatliogo overtook Rinaldi, which changed Rinaldi's line. And that's what they looked at and said he had already committed from flat out to almost dead stop braking on a line. He couldn't just let the brake off and go. So he was going to hit one or the other of them. Whatever he did, they're saying there was not much he could be done about it. And therefore, it's just a racing incident. What happened in front of him is what he ended up hitting. There was an unexpected change after he started braking. That's the story I heard from unofficial channels. Um, and they do have more cameras than we get to see even when we see more of them on television. If you remember Top Rack's thing in, in Most, it was still photographs that showed the tyre off the rim, not the video, even from that side. 
we didn't get the cameras to see that the video cameras, which is why at the time we were, we knew something weird had happened, but we didn't know what. It was actually Stills' photographs that proved what happened. So, yeah, I, I mean, end of the day, that's all very well, but one other rider was knocked off by another rider. Why not just even a long lap penalty? A long lap penalty is the least you can get, really, as a penalty. And nothing happened. Nothing. Well, at the end of the day, Gordon, we had a similar situation last year where Bautista and Ray had their clash. Yes. Obviously, a different corner and that, but you did end up with a long lap penalty for Ray, for me, I don't understand how it wasn't a long lap penalty yeah. for Batista. I said it on air. If it if if it's any other colour of bike, he gets a penalty. But the problem for it is Rinaldi ends up his whole weekend ends up looking really bad then. He had the podium on Saturday. He would have had a top three then in the Super Bowl race. Front row grid position for race two. Obviously he had a he had a retirement on Sunday anyway, but he would have then had a good chance of a really good weekend. I don't understand how there's not a long lap for it considering the penalty for a long lap isn't that big anyway it's two and a half seconds i think it was an easy one to be able to to dish out because regardless of what happens around you if you're the rider in third it's still up to you to avoid the action in front of you and it's still up to you to be aware of your surroundings if that means you have to break earlier then you have to break earlier correct but the the trouble is that what the, well that what was the explanation given to me was that because he had already started breaking before the other stuff happened in front of him that was what was seen to be by the powers that be as mitigating circumstances. Personally, end of the day, if you take another rider out under braking, then it's always it should always be your fault. So they should have had a long lap penalty. Yeah, mitigating circumstances because Ducati weren't motivated to make a complaint about their world championship leading rider against the rider that they've just told you're not going to be a rider for us next year. Yeah, but somebody else if did. You're the, if you're... The, if you're, yeah, someone else did. But if you're the team manager of the rider that that had the action against them, then there's more validity to it as it is. Yamaha made a complaint. I found it uh, quite interesting that Yamaha made a complaint because when you look at this situation, it did, like Denning said on Sunday afternoon, it didn't impact his riders. It actually did because Locatelli probably would have ended up with a front row start. He would have ended up with a podium if it had been for the long lap penalty. So... There were some things that were impacted by it. Yeah, there were. Um, it's important to stress that uh, that anyone has the right to complain, but not about the incident. The right to, to, to complain if it's not your rider that's involved in the incident is against the stewards. You say the stewards have made a, a plain error. They've not followed the rule book. They've not followed the convention. They've not done it right. So you do have the right in what I believe um, Yamaha complained about was the, the decision of the stewards, not the incident, which is where the, there is a difference. That's why they're simply not allowed to complain about it if it didn't involve one of their riders. Um, so they complained about the stewards, and the stewards, or whoever looks after the stewards, said, no, that's, that you've got no case. They made the right decision, or they made the decision that makes sense. It's not plainly wrong. VAR, mate. It was VAR in, uh, you know, in, in, in football. Um, they had a chance to look at all the angles and said no. Whether you agree with it or not, I, I don't know. And the other thing is, if they did punish him, what would be the net result? What would be the 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 really worst result for for Batista, who's leading the championship, and everything else? If I mean, I'm not saying I'm not sitting in the chair. It's easy to complain about the referee, but if they give him a long lap penalty, as you say, two and a half seconds, what difference is that going to make to his race or his weekend? Small. And, no, and everybody understood if he did. Everybody understood if they did give him a penalty. Now people are going, why did they not get a penalty? So it looks bad. It's one of those situations, Gordo, where it probably 
would have cost him a handful of points. If he, he would have ended up fifth or sixth at the end of the race, it wouldn't have made a big difference in terms of the championship. But it is one of those things now where there is a precedent set. Yeah. So let's see if this then brings something to the table when we get to Aragon or Portimao or Jaret. Like the end of the back straight in Jaret, the last weekend of the season. There's going to be a lot of riders with something to play for in that last weekend. It could be... You know, Bassani trying to get fourth in the World Championship. It could be Bassani against Petrucci for top independent rider. It could be anything like that. So let's see what happens with this now set as the precedence for something like that. And then you wait and see. I think that's one of the things where you're right in saying the appeal was made and the stewards and their decision was was validated because they went through the correct processes. But now we'll wait and see what happens for that going forward. It's going to be interesting one way or the other. And it kind of brings us on to the next point then, Gordo, because we saw Toprak so good this weekend. He loves Magnicor, as it was. He won the first two races, finished second in race two then on Sunday. And he looked he looked as good as ever, really, Toprak this weekend. He looked like he could do things with that bike, anything he wanted at different times in the weekend. But it was interesting that on race two, he was in a real scrap with Jonathan because Ray looked like he made a big step forward from race one to race two. Yeah, I mean, Johnny loves Magnicure. Magnicure maybe is also a track that doesn't show up the limitations. Um, not the favourite word that was that Johnny used to like here in, in the past, but um, the limitations of the setup or the, the just the age of his bike, whatever it is that's stopping him uh, having the kind of results he used to have. Um, and Magnicure maybe isn't such a problem. They've definitely made an improvement in the stability of the bike under braking, which was one of their big problems at the beginning of the year. Um, putting the front in crisis as Jonathan seems to call it um, so they, they looked a lot better and you, when you look at it there's two mega braking zones three actually when you consider the downhill into the final complex at that track really hard 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 down to almost walking pace braking zones um, so that he, I think he had more tools he had more knives to fight with. He talks about bringing a knife to a gun. You know, people have talked about bringing a knife to a gunfight, etc. He did seem to have sharper, longer knives at the weekend. It's all a game of millimeters, but he did look a bit more settled. And look at is it look at look at the trend. The last two rounds have been Johnny's two best weekends. The last two rounds he made a breakthrough at most. So there's obviously been something's improved. That's one of the things we have seen and Kawasaki have obviously made progress with it. It's not enough progress for Ray, but these next few rounds are going to be tough. Aragon is just going to be Bautista's playground. We've seen that many times in the past already. Portimao had been one of those tracks where in the past you kind of thought maybe people are able to bring the fight to the Ducati, but then we've been able to see the last few years Alvaro is very good there and then we go to Jerez to finish off the season. That could be a Yamaha, Kawasaki, Ducati track. It could be anything there. But the next two rounds are going to be really tough to be able to start winning races if you're Jonathan Ray. But when you look at it, Gordo... What I would say about that is that the biggest change from last year, even from last year, is that Ducati's working even better in even more places. The Ducati always had you know, certain good characteristics that were stronger than, than other people and characteristics that weren't as strong. On balance, Batista can still make a difference. Notably, Batista, not the other riders, which is a very important point to remember. But this year, they've provided, certainly for Batista, a setup that works everywhere, a bike that's even faster. They've lost 500 revs this year, 250 revs this year. They've lost revs this year, and the bike's still doing what it does. 
you know, that there's been an intervention on that bike and it's still doing what it does, which shows that the base bike underneath it is still working well. All the talk about performance and that, yeah, we can see that. But they've lost revs this year and the performance of a straight line is still blinding because the acceleration's good. They just they can map it to make it work a different way and Batista's good enough to overcome that. Yeah, you mentioned about the revs there, Gordo. In all likelihood, they're going to lose another 250, you'd imagine, after this round. And then they're down 750 for the season so far. Can we have a quick chat about the super concessions as well? Because it was interesting this weekend that Honda brought a whole new frame. It's not a whole new, it's not a whole new frame. I got that from a horse's mouth. It's not a completely different frame. It's a another modification to the frame. Well, let's look at it this way, Gordo. They spent all their concession points and it's not it's not a significant change. What's yes. the point in spending those concession points? Yes, there is no point. There, there is a fundamental design flaw for that bike at this level of competition on those tyres. Um, there, there is a conceptual flaw when you're trying to get short circuit performance out of that Honda. We've seen what it can do on the roads. We've seen what it could do on different tyres and, and let's face it, probably a almost completely different bike in Japan. The 8 hours, the 8 hour. it's always a slightly different thing and it's endurance, it's not super bike. It's super bike based, but it's a world endurance. So, when you get to that level of competition with trying to beat the three best global super bike riders that there are around, that bike is clearly not quite there. Either that or they've spent all these years putting the wrong setup in it, which I kind of don't really believe. I am prepared to believe that they went out of the job and didn't take the job seriously and subcontracted the job to other another team for years and years. And when they had to build a bike, which remember, it's not MotoGP. And they've obviously got their own problems in MotoGP. But this is not MotoGP. You can't just say, OK, we'll have another one. That's why we had to introduce super concessions. Last year, remember, they did this last year and they've done maybe even a bigger change this year. And at the moment, that hasn't seen to be made any difference. There is something seriously wrong with the whole basic idea um, of that bike at the absolute 0.1% level you need to beat Batista and Top Rack and Jonathan. It's quite interesting, Gordo, though, because the comparison is always going to be made between themselves and BMW. And from week to week, it ebbs and flows which one's going to be the faster bike. Track to track, it's one or the other. But what's interesting is when BMW have their good weekends, Scott and Most, even Van der Mark in the early rounds at, say, Indonesia, or this weekend, Gerloff and Magni Corps, the BMW just gets better results than the Honda on its good weekends. The BMW isn't a, isn't a perfect bike by any stretch, but whenever it's working, it's clearly a better bike than when the Honda's working. Um, as I said from the beginning, um, even last year when they were making changes, I think there's more potential in that BMW than they've finally realised. I've no idea why it hasn't come and been made more consistent because it's been around for a while. And okay, new bike this year again, detail changes, aerodynamics. They obviously had an aerodynamic problem last year that they fixed this year. Um, they, they've made improvements to the bike this year without question. They're all detail things, but they're all detail. That's what racing at this level is about, is all details, getting the details right. If there's anything missing on your bike or anything missing on your setup, you're going to finish tenth in this championship. That you know, race by race. So they are they are at least capable of doing it. The Honda has had, um, you know, reasonable performances this year, being a podium in Mandalika. Um, ultimately, I agree with your point. I think the BMW is now showing that it's got at least potentially better performance, more consistent. All that's missing is more 
a, a final level of consistency. And they've even improved in the breaking area, which was one of their big weak points. So I asked everybody this weekend that I could about the improvement in the breaking uh, point, and they say it's a bit better. Gerloff said that it's been, it's been improving. That was their last thing. And again, to repeat, and no doubt we say this in every pod, when you enter a corner, you determine how well you go around the middle of the corner and the exit of the corner. If you're having trouble on the entry, you're done, you know. It's interesting though, Gordy, you mentioned that you'll end up 10th in the World Championship. That's where Xavi Vieira is now. And what's interesting about it is Xavi doesn't really make any waves. You don't really pay that much attention to Vieira for much of a weekend. He's quite a quiet guy. His results aren't really that flashy. He's consistently outperformed Ikerlakwona over the course of the last 18 months. He's ahead of Scott Riding, Remy Gardner, Garrett Gurloff in the championship. He's only a handful of points behind Domi Agadar. He's actually put together a really, you know, a solid campaign in a very difficult set of circumstances by not making mistakes. But when you look at Xavi and Lekwona, it's an interesting one because both of them obviously Grand Prix riders that came to Superbikes. Lekwona, his head's turned. He wants to be a MotoGP again. We've seen him jump from one bike to the other and you can't really do that anymore. It's not like it used to be where the level in Superbikes wasn't as high as it is now. You need to be all in. And Xavi is, you know, from the outside looking in, much more committed to that Superbike program. He's not looking to move to Grand Prix. He's just trying to focus on this. And it's interesting that even though he's the unfancied Honda rider, over, you know, from pretty much Assen last year onwards, he's been much more competitive than Iker. Yeah, he's getting the most out of it with the least incidents and the least overriding. I think he's probably found a level of the bike and he's riding to the level, but not that often over the level. He's had his, his offs and, and his incidents as well, but he's when you look at his point scores, you know, He's had his retirements, but he's 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 there. But I mean, he's having good. Re- he's not had any really great results, except for Mandalika, and that is. I think he is the level. He is the 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 is what a good rider will get out of that bike every weekend in most races. Lekona is either tries too hard or is what you know. Or and if he does, he has a good weekend, or it it crashes. What was the problem for the two super experienced previous Honda riders? Every time they got to the limit, they couldn't find it. With all those years of experience in like Grand Prix racing, superbike racing, and in Haslam's case, everything that, that, that moves on two wheels, and they kept crashing all the time. Every time they tried to find pace, they crashed. That's a that's quite a difficult thing to deal with. And now they've had two levels of super concession, and it's still not working for them. But Vier, he's a good rider. And he, and an asset to the championship in a way he's like Honda's equivalent of Locatelli. Sometimes you wouldn't know he was there, except when you look at the results. Lock is the most low key guy in the world, and Vierke is the Honda equivalent. But look at where he is in the championship compared to others. He is, however, behind Yamaha Privateer and a Ducati Privateer, Ducati Privateer, and all the other factory bikes. That's the best Honda, you know. Just when you look at it as well, Gordon, let's wrap up what we saw in MagniCore. And there's one team that I want to talk to you about, GMT94. Obviously, the Superbike class with Lorenzo Baldessari, it's been an exceptionally tough year for them. But that team and Christoph Guillaume, they managed to have something to cheer about this weekend. Double podium at home for Valentin Debees in the Supersport class. This was something that a lot of people were 
really pleased for the bees to be able to get and also for that team. Yeah, I mean, everybody respects that team. Everybody, they're, they're such joyous human beings. They're racers to their core. They just love it. And they're brave. They take decisions. We're going to leave endurance and we're going to come to World Super Sport, Superbike. We want to go to Superbike. They went when they got the chance and the bikes were right. They have the same level as everybody else, I believe, unless they're doing it differently for sponsor reasons. Um, ultimately, they're not scared. They're incredibly positive. And look at what they did at their home race. It was joyful to watch. And Debeez is... A, he's a kind of slightly strange character. He's a big, happy, smiley guy. But look at what he did on a track. On race two, the only reason that that result maybe wasn't even better is just because he clearly had to ride so hard on his tyres that he, you know, at the very end or near the end, the gap started opening up. But every, every I don't know about you, but every single time I saw it, I thought, right, now he's going to have to drop back now. Oh, next lap. Oh, now. Next lap. Now. And it never happened until really quite near the end. And I'm thinking, can it be? Is there a fairy, French fairy tale at home? In the sunshine? You know? I mean, all the things that Magnicure presents you with. It's a tough cookie, Magnicure, for everybody, but especially the riders. And look at what he did. And the fans, the French fans are genius. You know, the ball doors this weekend, and there was still a fair amount of them there. In the sunshine, they were genius. They got somebody to cheer. This is something I was going to ask you about then, Gore, as well. Obviously, the ball door has been in Magnicore in the past. It's in uh, Paul Ricard this year, and you've got a little bit of news for everyone out there in podcast land. Yeah, I'll be doing some commentary on that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do a bit of TV commentary for it, which is very exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure if the smile that I have is coming across, Gordo. I'm excited for it. Yeah. And the two of us obviously working together for the weekend. It's going to be good fun. Well, it'll be funny for you either way. If it goes well or it goes badly, it'll still be funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to go well. And uh, it's going to be worth keeping an eye on the endurance this weekend as well. Just as much for anything else for Gordo's TV debut. But And Gordo, other than that, you got to get your bags packed, get yourself down for that. But... Um, now that we're finished the pod, we've managed to get through pretty much all the stuff from MagniCorp. We've got one minute left at the end. How was your trip to Ireland? Sell the country to all of our listeners. Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, we spent three days in Northern Ireland and seven days in Ireland. Um, it was wonderful um, in every regard. I used to go to Northern Ireland quite a lot when I was a kid. I did a big tour around Ireland with, with uh, the old racer crowd from Scotland a few years ago now. Um it was great. It was it's the first holiday my wife and I have had together without family or kids or anything ever in our whole lives, which is astonishing to me, but it's true. Um some very kind guy showed us around Dublin. Um I can't remember his name now, maybe Steve, who showed us around no, Dublin. He's, 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 he's useless that far. <laughs> he, it was the best unpaid tour guide experience I've ever had in a Volkswagen polo around Dublin, uh with arms flailing in and out the windows. There, there, this, that, that. It was fantastic. And then it allowed us the final day in Dublin to go around known as if almost like we knew where we were going. Now, it was a great trip. The, the west coast of Ireland is astonishing. It, and being Scottish, it's very like Scotland, but it's also not. It's a different place. It's a different vibe. It's a different feel. It's all very green like Scotland and all on, but you don't have an awful lot of those big sea lochs you get in Scotland, the really big ones. There's not that many of them. They're either great big bays or it's a bit of a... Lots of bays, you know, small bays. So there's a, there were a couple of things I really noticed. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And it was, you know, my wife's big into Derry Girl. She got to see all the Derry Girl stuff in, in, in Derry, London Derry. So she had a, 
See the you know it started off well for her. Just and she's Irish. Irish. It's just Irish. And she, and no she's Irish for London Derry. But my wife's uh, ancestry is all Irish, um, and her name maiden name's Murphy. So she was obviously going back to the old land. She actually went to where her grandfather was born, and we did all that kind of stuff as well. So between staying in nice places and seeing nice places, we we did quite a few interesting things. Giants, Cosby, you name it, we did it all. Did the whole thing. Pints, 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 Gordo, and now it's back to points, points, points for the last three rounds of World SBK. And uh, like I said, you're going to be on commentary duty this weekend, so all of the Paddock Pass podcast followers should definitely check that out. And uh, we'll be back after Aragon for our next World SBK show. We've got Aragon and Portimao back to back, and then Heret at the end of the season. We've also got a preview for the Indian Grand Prix, new Grand Prix on the MotoGP calendar coming up. Check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast to become a Paddock Insider and get our Paddock Notes show. If you want to know what the Paddock Notes show is like, it's a daily roundup of all the news from the Paddock. And on the Thursday of each of the last few rounds, we've published that onto our podcast platforms as well. So everyone's able to get a taster of what that's like. So if you like listening to those, check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. As it is, Gordo, we've got... uh, couple of weeks now until we're back for world sbk duty on the podcast but like i said it's going to be busy for us so i'll let you go get your bags packed get yourself ready for the ball door and uh, we'll catch up with you again in a couple of weeks on the podcast